Welcome to Neighborhood Church. To learn more about who we are as a community or to financially support Neighborhood, go to neighborhoodchurchmn.org. Enjoy the message. All right, we're back at it. How do I do this? There we go. All right. Um, uh, Lamel and I, we did youth group together uh, for a long, long time. And I just said, like, people are actually talking during five-minute break. It's like, it's working. Then I told him, like, what if, if, if I got up here and said, we're going to play a game, would any, who would walk out? <laughs> we played a game. Uh, it was my favorite game. It's it called Save the Drama for Your Mama. And, uh, and it was essentially a game I just got to make up on the fly, and kids would run around frantically. Oh, man, I loved it. So instead of a message, we're going to play a game. <laughs> um, um, we are doing a message now. That's what it is. All right. I'm thinking about games. So... Um, Trigger words, right? I love talking about words because words um, not just matter, words carry matter. They have matter. Words can, like, create whole new ways of existing or thinking. For example, uh, maybe you were uh, in eighth grade and you had a coach or a gym teacher and they said something to you that, like, motivated you. And you're like, I will run through that brick wall. For me, it was uh, Mike Devaney and he looked at me and he said, you should shoot the ball more. I'm like... No, 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 I don't shoot the ball. These guys shoot the ball. I just follow out of games as soon as possible. That's what I do. And just him like saying I should do that made me feel like, oh, maybe I am an athlete. Um, and at the same time, maybe a coach said something to you that you still carry with you to this day because it hurt you so bad, right? Intentional or unintentional, words can have important, or important and traumatizing consequences. And so there's words that inspire us, right? Like... You won. People love being a winner, right? You feel a little good. When someone says yes, that makes you feel good. You hear the word Carlton, and you're like, my life is now transformed, right? And equally, there is words that you hear that trigger you, right? Like the word no. A lot of us are not good at hearing no. I will not do that. You're like, well, I'm a man. Everyone says yes to me, right? Um, words uh, like moist. I should have you know, I should have prompted you for that one. That word gets people really frustrated. They get, like, all uncomfortable, right? Um, and then there's uh, trigger words. Like, if you're in a different subsection, like if you were really into chess or you were into powerlifting, there's going to be words that you're going to use. Like, when people are doing, like, running or biking, the things people yell, right? Because my son's in cross country, and there's one guy, and he just stands on the line, to all the two harbor players, and he gets down low like this, and he goes, run through your darkness, run through your darkness. I'm like, what is going on in your world, my man? <laughs> and those kids are like, am I running fast? Is someone chasing me? <laughs> um, uh, and, and then even in the subsection of uh, Christianity, there's words that we might use that might feel life-giving, and there's words that might feel like they rob you of something. And we're in a series called Reimagine. There's concepts or thoughts about God that at one point maybe felt life-giving and maybe you had to put it away. Well, if we were able to reimagine what that word might mean of who this God is, it can open us up again into these liberating, beautiful places. Um, and the word that I want to uh, reimagine, that is, was a trigger word for me, is this word called, it's your favorite word, evangelism. Right? Does that make your heart go pitter-pat? You're like, let's talk about evangelism. Everyone's favorite thing to talk through, right? Like, the reality is not everyone knows what evangelism 
is, right? But it's a huge, especially when it comes to, um, uh, when it comes to evangelicals. It is a, it is a pillar, a tenet of their faith. Evangelism is just simply the idea of spreading the good news, right? It would be a method or an intentional way of trying to convert people. That's everyone's favorite word, conversion, right? Trying to convert people um, into their faith stream, into their communities or in the, their way of thinking about uh, the Bible. And um, evangelism is just you're, you're spreading the good, the gospel. You're spreading the good news. And how you define what that news is, that good news shapes how you do evangelism. And again, as a former evangelical pastor, I'm going to slap myself in the back, I was pretty, pretty good at evangelism, right? Especially if it's driven by how we define what the good news was, right? So I would say what I used to believe, the gospel, the good news, um, is that um, Jesus died for my sins, and he went to the cross, and three days he resurrected so that I could be in heaven, right? And if that is good news, then you are in an incredibly privileged space, right? And here's why. And I've used this example uh, a lot. And I use it because maybe you forgot about it or maybe you've never heard it. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. There's an activist and theologian and author named Lisa Sharon Harper. And she is um, what I would call her, I can't say on camera, right? She is fierce. She is awesome. Um, if you've never read any of her work, one of her books that I love, I reference a lot, is The Very Good Gospel, and it's, it's incredible. Um, in that book, she tells a story of if this, the gospel is good news, she goes, then it has to be good news for everybody. And she tells a story about going, uh, if she can travel back in time to her great-great-great-grandma, who is an enslaved uh, a woman of color in the South, and um, had lots of babies, not all by her consent. And this was her life. This was her lived experience. And Lisa says if she could go back to her great-great-grandma, knock on the door, and her grandma opens the door, and she goes, Grandma, I'm your great-great-great-granddaughter. I have the best news for you. Jesus was, came from God, birthed by a virgin Mary, lived a perfect life without sin, like none of it, and then got put on trial by Pontius Pilate and then got hung on a cross and died a brutal death. But Grandma, don't worry. Jesus resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven so that when we call on Jesus as Lord, we shall have eternal life with Jesus and God in heaven. Isn't that great news, Grandma? And the Grandma would probably say, but what about my body? What about my friend? What about my brother? Like, that's great for the future, but what about now? That would not be good news right? It's good news if you don't have to worry about what you're going to eat today. It's good news if you are not being actively um, marginalized or oppressed. It's great news if you have access to health care, right? Because if your biggest concern is like, what's going to happen to me when I die, right? Then you have it pretty good. And I would say a lot of people view evangelism or the gospel in this way because it doesn't cost us really anything, right? And so evangelism, if that if the gospel is just that you're going to go to some place at some point, then evangelism doesn't even really cost you a whole lot. Because now you're trying to go around, and if that's the good news that's driving you to go do this stuff, um, then it's not really about a person. It's about a group of people who are outside. They don't have the faith. They, they are heathens, or whatever word we use to communicate us versus them. Evangelism is a very much us versus them game. And there is 
uh, probably billions of dollars that is spent on how to train people how to do this really, really well. The way I was uh, trained about it, I went to college. I went to a Bible college um, and it, for my undergrad, and I took a, um, a world's missions class. And missions is just like uh, evangelism on steroids. Let's just put it that way. And in this class, uh, <laughs> there's like, I don't know, 50 to 70 of us standing, and I don't remember his name, but he had a mustache, and he was tall. And he's on, and we're standing up, and I think we were supposed to be praying or something like that. And I remember like, oh, I'm paying thousands of dollars for this class. <laughs> and he's like, we got to go save the lost, and we have to go proclaim the gospel. And he's trying to get us all worked up, and it's clearly not working, right? Because we're all standing around like, yeah, yep, love you, Lord. And I remember looking outside the window thinking like, when can I get out of here? And the professor stopped talking. It got quiet, and I'm like, that's weird. I look at him, and he drops a four-letter word that starts with F. Now, little conservative evangelical Chris was like, what did he just say? And there was gasps, and everyone just stopped, and they looked up. He goes, exactly. You care more about a four-letter word than the millions of footsteps of people marching into the gates of hell. And I'm like, I'm scared. (laughs) Right? I felt shame. Like, and then uh, uh, several classes later, he framed it as, um, imagine Chris, he didn't say it to me, he said to the class, imagine Chris that a scientist is about to die and they hand you the cure for cancer. You have the only cure for cancer and it is free and available to anyone who wants it. And if you, Chris, held on to that cure, you held on to that secret that you could cure cancer and you didn't make it available for everyone, you'd be a monster. And you might think, well, it's kind of inconvenient. It might be awkward to have a conversation, right, with Tony. Like, well, do you have cancer? I, how do you bring that? It doesn't come up naturally, right? I might, if I know someone and I love them, I, then maybe I'll, I'd surely give it to them. But, like, I got stuff to do. And he says, this is what it means to be a Christian. You have the cure for life and death. And if you don't share it with everyone, then you are a monster. That was his best way to motivate us <laughs> to evangelize people. Uh, and it worked for me because that was the first time I'm like, you're right. If I really believe in heaven, and at the time I really believed in hell, then why wouldn't I try getting everyone from my high school, because I was in college, I should go back and try getting everyone saved because I wanted them to live. This is evangelism. Then if it's just a a product to get people to say a prayer and make a decision, then you can rationalize a lot of things. Has anyone ever got a track before? Anyone? Right? If you go to parades, I'm a big parade person. Got that from my father, right? Um, they usually come around and they hand out cards. And on the cards, I talked about this last week a little bit, but on the card it says that you're a wicked, depraved person. If you just say this prayer, you know, some Romans verse, and then you shall be saved. And the guy, he came around, he didn't look people in the eyes. He just handed them. And I stopped and I said, what are you, like, hoping to get out of this? What is, like, the best result? He goes, Jesus Christ would be your Lord and Savior. I'm like, thanks, man. Right? Because I'm not a person. I'm a problem to be solved. I'm someone to get fixed. And they can go to bed and, and sleep very well knowing they handed out hundreds and hundreds of these tracks trying to get people to fall in love with Jesus. If you're really trying to get people to fall in love with Jesus, right, you might want to know their story the nuance of their life, the trauma, the grief, the beauty in their life, the people who love. But if you just see people, you've got to say this prayer, then it's cold. 
And this is where uh, apologetics uh, came from. Apologetics is like the science or the, the, the art of being able to defend your faith or persuade people into faith. And I was trained on this, right? The people who are the best at this um, are Calvinists <laughs> and um, Mormons. They're really, really good, right? Um, because if you've ever had a, a, a Latter-day Saint come and knock on your door, um, and every Latter-day Saint has to go for two years on a mission, and this is what they do. They knock on doors, and they're trained how to get into with your consent, right? They're not breaking through the door. Uh, for the Lord! Um, uh, but they're trying to get in your room or into your house and to have conversations and have agreements about who Jesus is and all these things because to their research, it works. And so you can, like, craft words. You can craft arguments. You can craft discussions of where you're trying to draw people in so that you can win them to Christ. And I thought about this week of when um, I was an evangelical pastor, we were really good at this, and especially when it came to kids. And there's, you, could, there's, you could spend thousands and thousands of dollars to have someone come and consult your church of how to have children evangelism. And it never bothered me before because it was like, hey, who wouldn't want to get saved? Who wouldn't want to be converted? Then I thought, I thought if I show up to some church because my buddy invited me or one of their kids is getting baptized or some milestone, and my kid went downstairs and he came up with like a sticker or a, a pamphlet that's... I almost said a four-letter word right there, too. <laughs> what was that? Oh, that was, there's, something's listening to me, right? <laughs> At least I know one person's listening. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> Ooh, all right, what was I talking Oh, if my kid came up and he goes, Dad, guess what? I converted to Christianity, right? That would make me feel very frustrated because no one consulted me, no one asked for my consent, and I would think, at what cost? At what method? And what did you tell my kid to be able to sign that piece of paper or to raise their hand or close their eyes? And again, I did this for a living for a long time. And now I think about it, I'm like, I had the best intentions, right? Best intentions. But we, 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 and there was some really good fruit. There's some really good things that came of it. But we created an environment for people to, A, feel loved. I do believe that. But then trying to get them to a desired result. And now I think about it, I'm like, I, 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 we clearly don't do that here, right? No one's ever asked, hey, when are you going to give a salvation call? I'm like, I don't know what, dinner, when you feed people, that's salvation, right? When you, like, give 10 bucks to the guy in the street, that, that's salvation, helping them. And so the concept of evangelism like that, I can't do anymore. I just, I just can't. So how can we reimagine it? Because I deeply believe in evangelism, spreading the good news, and the good news has to be good for everybody, and the good news has to be embodied. It has to be flesh and blood. It has to be here. It has to make a difference. And if that's true, then the way that we evangelize should be different. Now, think about this. Every wedding I do, I just did a wedding. The lover's in the back right there, right? Uh, I did it at their wedding. Uh, is I read, uh, I say a verse from uh, Genesis chapter 2. And to me, this is the gospel. Uh, in Genesis 2, it tells the story that Adam and Eve stood before God and one another, and they were naked, and they felt no shame. And I say this at every wedding, because when I say naked, there's usually one person that laughs, and it's usually like a teenage boy or like a 40-year-old man. And then I look at them, I'm like, we're best friends now. That's why I do it. And then B is this, this is like, I think, the goal of a good and beautiful life. 
Because when we think about being naked, right, rarely is it that we, rarely do we have no shame attached to it. When we think about being naked, we think about being exposed, right? Does anyone else have like the junior high dream where you take off your jacket and you're only wearing a shirt that's like too short and you're trying to like walk around class like trying to cover it down, right? Okay, that's why I go to therapy, <laughs> right? Because somewhere, at some point, someone told us to be naked is to be bad, right? To be exposed is not good. And we spend trillions of dollars on um, clothes and makeup and surgeries to accentuate the things that someone said, this is beautiful. If you look like this, if you have this, and it's set this way, then you are beautiful. And we spend trillions of dollars to hide other things that we, someone told us that are not beautiful, that they are disgusting, that it is ugly. It's something that we tolerate. When you look in the mirror and you go, ugh, again? <laughs> You're the same person, Right? Because we think that who we are isn't enough, right? And here, the, the, the Hebrew authors who crafted this story left in this one verse that says that they felt no shame. The opposite, opposite of shame is what? Beauty? Confidence? I imagine that Adam and Eve looked at each other and looked at themselves and says, I'm a miracle. And the fullness of who they are, exactly in that space and time, was not just, well, that's enough, it was celebrated, right? And to me, this is the gospel. Exactly where you're at and who you are, not because of what you did or didn't do, is that you are fully loved and you are truly good and beautiful. And the fullness of who you are is a sacred thing. And we should walk around, and I, I do, right? I, and I'm like, I'm a miracle, right? We should walk around saying, well, I'm a miracle. If that's, for me, the good news, that I've always been loved by God, that, what does Richard Rohr say? He said, the only separation from God is the separation that we created, right? We created this belief that we could be separated from God. The reality is we've never been separated from God. If that is the gospel and the fullness of who we are is how we can show up in a room, right? That also means then the fullness of who you are can be celebrated and welcomed, even though it might be different. And if we can go around and inspire and remind people the fullness of who we are is something sacred and beautiful and holy, what a beautiful world that is. That is, And then it's going to shape the way that we go around and, quote, unquote, evangelize. Because on um, the, the, what is the word, epistemology, right? Epistemology is the, the notion of how you come into knowledge of something. How you come into knowledge of God, how you come into knowledge of self, how you come into knowledge of what you love and what you do for work, right, is going to be very different from me and Barrett. Because Barrett has his own lived experience. And the way of him coming into knowledge of what it means to be a dad or a husband or a man is going to be different from me because of my trauma, because of my experience, my education, blah, 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 blah. Therefore, we have here, like, uh, if people are watching, we have thousands of people here, and we have thousands of ways of expressing that knowledge or that reality, that lived experience of divine love. Therefore, evangelism is going to be different for each person based on our lived experience. For example, um, spreading good news, there is uh, a feminist, and their name is Mary Daly. I, I, couldn't, I don't know if it's Daly or Dally, so if, well, she's not alive, sadly. But <laughs> if there's families watching this, please correct me. Uh, and, oh, yeah, she's out there, Mary da uh, Dally, Daly. And uh, uh, when she was younger, she came into this uh, idea of patriarchy. She learned what it is and got caught up on patriarchy and realized um, this system has robbed me and generations of women of being our fullest self, Right? 
and she became an activist, and she became an academic, she became a professor, and she taught at Boston University, or, or, or college. Um, and in her most popular class, she um, did not allow any males in her class. And uh, of course, men were like, oh, we totally accept that, we appreciate that. No, they fought it, right? And so uh, she got interviewed, and they're like, why are you essentially discriminating against men? And she goes, yeah, I can tell you why. Because when a man walks into the room, all the women have to now look pretty. When a man walks into the classroom, now the women have to be quiet and laugh at their jokes. When a man walks in, and maybe the gal uh, has the bravery to stand up and say an idea that might be very different from what a man might say, and then the, man, the men will mock and laugh at her, and that woman shrinks back down. She goes, funny, when there's no men in the class, the women can be fully themselves. They don't have to play to anyone else other than who they are and where they're at and where they want to be. She goes, that's why I don't have men in my class. Well, I love that. I love it. Because that is her evangelizing. She's spreading the good news. Why? Because she recognized there is a demographic of people who are being unfairly treated. They're being marginalized. They're being silenced. And the good news is, us being our fullest self is not a threat to you. Feminism is not saying men are horrible people. Feminism isn't saying we have to, like, put all the men in a, the basement, right? <laughs> that might work, but, right? What they, feminism would be the belief that all of us should be thriving, and maybe we might have to do some work, change some systems, do some self-care, some healing, so that everyone can really, really flourish. And she saw that. She goes, I'm going to, I'm going to educate these women to be their fullest, fiercest self. And right now, I can't do that if you're in here. So she got fired from her job. And guess who protested? Men and women. But the men use their platform, men use their power to protest and saying, no, no, we're better because of this. And she got her job back. And it's, I love that story, all right? Evangelism is going to look different for maybe marginalized communities. In, um, I'm in a, a class right now called um, Queer and Trans Theology. And what we talked about last week was how did, like, spirituality in the queer community, how did it really, like, take a big step forward? How did it evolve? And it came out of feminism, civil rights, liberation theology, a, a ton of activism. And uh, I read a story about this uh, um, gay activist, and he said when he saw in the civil rights era uh, people of color holding up signs that said, um, black is beautiful, right? That's evangelism. They're saying, you see us as this way. We're telling you this is who we are. Us being our fullest self is sacred work. So then the gay activist, he, uh, he didn't come up with it, but um, through a, a series, they came up with signs that say, um, gay is good. That is evangelism. Because they're reminding people, the way you treat us, the way you see us, the, the way that the system has been set up, you've been silencing us, you've been putting us in corners, we've had hide behind these walls, and we're saying who we are is sacred and beautiful. That's evangelism. Now, what we can move into then is we can all be powerhouse evangelists, right? But you don't get a private jet. I'm sorry. That's only for TV evangelists. We don't, we don't, we don't get that, right? And we can all be evangelists. And everywhere we go, we can spread the good news. We can spread the gospel. How do we know if we're actually doing it? Well, in John 13, 
uh, Jesus gave us a little clue. Jesus said that, um, not in John 13, but Jesus said that he came to bring life and life to the fullest, right? So Jesus says in John 13 that you, um, they'll know that you're living a full life. They'll know that you are Christians, right? Jesus-looking people. They will know that you, you have this embody the gospel by the way you love, by the way you love one another. Evangelism then comes down to, we know we're doing it right if love is coming out of the work we're doing. Now evangelism then, today, could be having a meal with your family and telling them, looking in the eyes and say that you love them. Evangelism really could be like at the co-op um, up on 4th uh, by the hospital. Um, there's people there who are um, asking for money, Right? And a lot of people, they're like, well, they're just going to go buy booze with it. They're just going to go buy drugs with it. I'm like, yeah, they might. Right? I, don't, I doubt that they woke, woke up one day and said, you know what I want to do? I want to beg for money on the side of the road. That sounds, sounds pretty, pretty, pretty good. Right? Evangelism can just be like, whatever you use this money for, I'm here to help you. Right? If that's to survive another day, that's evangelism. Evangelism could be texting your friend on the anniversary of when their dad passed away and saying, think about you. Right? There are so many ways to love God. And evangelism doesn't have to be this huge, crafted, thousands of dollars art, like this whole platform, this whole series. It can just literally be, you want to know one of the most holy things you can do? One of the best ways that you can evangelize. You, you, might, want, you might want to write this one down, right? Show up. I have uh, some friends who are helping uh, us think through how we operate as a church. And, like, we want to be inclusive. We want to be allies. We want to be um, uh, liberation theology. We want to be a part of, like, helping reimagine systems. And I'm like, well, what can we do? And what can we give money to? And what books should I read? And they're like, yeah, that's great. But number one, show up. If there's a rally, if there's an event, if there's, um, what do you call it, um, when someone passes away and people get together, you call that a, not a funeral, um, Celebration, like, no, like, you're going to show up and you're going to have not a memoir. Um, you're going to, what? No, wake, no, like, there's, <laughs> I love their turn. No, when, like, when a school shooting happens and people show up at night with candles and, a what? Memorial, memorial. You're, you're, you're grieving together, right? We, all those words work, but, and they said, just show up. And I won't lie, showing up is uh, very intimidating to me. Right? And so when, when walking into a system where I don't know anything, walking into a system where I'm not the pastor, right? Walking a system that has a very different lived experience than myself should be intimidating. But as soon as I show up and I see people coming together, laughing, crying, like calling for the collective idea of to be black is beautiful, reminding each other that there is pain, but there's life, and they're not going to silence us. So my encouragement to you is this week, think through a practical way how you could bring love and hope to someone maybe that you love, someone at work, somewhere along the path during your day that you can evangelize. And then when you do it, I want you to yell out, evangelism! No, don't do that. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to pray. I'd love to have you join me. So God, I thank you for the whole notion that we can reimagine what it means to be sacred, what it means to find belonging. And I pray that we, A, we can experience that gospel 
and then we can believe that gospel. That the fullest of who I am is not just enough, but is I'm a miracle. So thank you, God. And I pray you'd use us, use me, to remind the people around me in my neighborhood that they're a miracle as well. And we use our art, we use our words, our hands, our leadership, our tables to evangelize that gospel message that people are good and beautiful. So we love you. Amen. All right. Well, thanks, friends, for being in the space with me. If you'd like to process, you'd like to pray, you'd like to talk through evangelism strategies, I'll be up here, and I'd love to connect. Thank you.